Welcome to the New Books Network. When it comes to the development of Western Europe, there was religion, and then there was science. That is how the story is generally told. But Anna Gushmawa Busa believes that modern Europe owes more to the religious part than is generally appreciated. And she's written Sacred Foundations, the Religious and Medieval Roots of the European State. Uh, so welcome to you. Great, great to be here. Thank you. And, and just tell us, um, first of all, what period did you look at, actually? What are we dealing with here? So the book examines basically the 11th through the 14th centuries, um, the late 11th century being when the church, the Catholic church, as it's now known, breaks itself free of secular control and starts to exert enormous influence on um, territorial fragmentation, on law, parliaments, and even administration. Exactly. So this is the time the state was founded, really. This is your basic point. The state was founded quite early on, earlier than most people appreciate it, or, or, or at least aspects of the state. That's right. I, definitely aspects. I mean, I think when we talk about the medieval world, we're not talking about the kind of states that are familiar to us now. You know, borders are very fuzzy. It's not clear when one, where one ruler ends and another one begins. There's no such thing as a national system of law or education, public goods like water or roads provided by the government are non-existent. But what there is, is a provision of justice. There is a provision of law and order. Um, And what we also see are the beginnings of taxation, of representation, of assenting to policy and the development of the whole notion of consent. And in each one of these, the church plays a really important role. Right, so these are really sort of deep and profound trends in the, the, the history of Europe. And, and you know, I should say that we'll be talking about the past quite a bit, but obviously these trends are very relevant to the future. And a, a lot of the stuff you're discussing you know, is echoed today very much. So we, we will talk about where this is headed, but we do need to understand this, the, you know, your ideas about these early periods. So can you take us back to the collapse of the Roman Empire and, and what was happening there with religion in what is now Western Europe? So, you know, as, as the Roman Empire sort of slowly collapses and the center of power shifts east, what's basically happening in Europe by the 8th and 9th century is the rise of the Carolingian Empire. And once that collapses at the end of the 9th century, there's a power vacuum that it's increasingly filled by the sort of German part of what used to be the Carolingian Empire, the sort of the rise of what becomes known as the Holy Roman Empire. And this is not some kind of a centralized powerhouse, um, but it is relatively sort of coherent for the time. It's certainly more powerful than many others. And this empire, among other things, basically administers its own territory, but it also administers the church. And so local bishoprics, local church offices, local cathedrals are all sources of revenue for the rulers who name the people who, who name the bishops, who name the priests, and who both basically that way can distribute patronage and can gain benefits from the sort of revenues that these offices provide. And by the 11th century, um, the church is, already, is, is chafing under this arrangement. It wants to sort of break free from it. And thanks to a power vacuum, um, and it's sort of, you know, the kind of very fortuitous coincidence of reformist popes that arrive at the same time. You basically have the sort of, you know, sudden breaking of these chains and the church really starts to assert itself. Um, and as it asserts itself, it basically does two things. On the one hand, it has as its goal the fragmentation of the Holy Roman Empire. 
its nightmare is that the empire once again, or the rulers and their lords of the empire, reassert their power over the church and rob it of its autonomy. Um, the church also wants to reform itself internally. It wants to get rid of clerical marriage and the sale of offices and all kinds of corruption. Um, it wants to become a more sort of coherent and centralized hierarchical organization. And as it engages in this program of reform, um, it also starts to develop many of the, the sort of uh, templates that rulers will subsequently pick up. It develops powerful church councils um, with representation and consent. It starts to systematize canon law. As part of this conflict with the Holy Roman Empire, it, it really systematizes law. And by the late 11th century, the first universities, um, the University of Bologna, start off as law schools. And both popes and rulers vie to sort of found more universities for this legal expertise. And so that's the early story of the, you know, the church's influence. There's an awful lot in there, but just, just just to understand when the church is trying to assert itself at this phase, and you're talking what 1100 on. This is yeah, it starts about 10, 1075 or so, 1054. Yeah, it, it, it's quite unified. The church at this point. I mean, this is the Catholic Church, right? It's, or or is it a case of local bishops trying to assert locally? So that's you know in a fascinating question because what basically happens is at this point, Rome is not what it is today. It is not the apex of this powerful, coherent uh, hierarchy. In fact, that's one of the goals of this reform program that Pope Gregory and the Seventh and others launch. So what you have instead are all these local bishoprics. And all these local um, religious rulers, many of whom are under the thumb of the local lord, the local noble, the local baron, who names them and extracts taxes from them. And so rather than this kind of incredibly centralized and cohesive organization that we think of as the modern church, this is a church that itself is trying to reform and to gain that kind of cohesion in the 11th century. Um, so it's much more fragmented and it's much more sort of messy um, than we would think of today. And in fact, many of the bishops are opposed to this reform program. They don't particularly want to give up uh, control to the Pope. They don't want to be part of a cohesive organization. They have all kinds of, you know, very profitable side deals going on. Um, and they serve as sort of local administrators and local judges. And they don't particularly want to give up those roles. Um, and so there's a struggle within the church over the reform program. And then there's a struggle between the church and secular rulers. So the most extreme place for centralization would be the Vatican, right? Uh, I, I guess. I mean, the, yeah, the Vatican itself. And then on the other end of the scale, which bits of Europe had bishops who were most independent-minded saying, I'm going to protect my powers? So it really depends on the time period. Um, I think you're absolutely right. That, you know, certainly in the Vatican, there's you know, the College of Cardinals, and there's a whole sort of rise of, I guess you would call it rule by committee. So the College of Cardinals becomes much more powerful. It is now the institution that elects the Pope and brings the whole idea of elections as a means of choosing rulers um, into the fore. Elsewhere in, in Europe, you basically have, you know, the situation varies largely. There are very few bishops that are fully independent. In almost all cases, they're either allied with rulers or they are basically the second sons of various noble families. Um, that's especially the case in Germany. It's certainly the case in England, where kings retain the rule to name bishops for a very long time. Um, and in fact, to this day, right, there's a, sort of a secular control over the church. So it really depends on the time period. But at no point are the bishops fully separate. Um, there's a prince bishops in the Holy Roman Empire. But in all cases, um, they both have to answer to the pope and to local secular rulers. Now, you just said that uh, fascinating thing about, you know, the, the whole idea of electing leaders coming from 
basically you know, this highly centralised and some would say authoritarian Catholic church. Uh, so that's a prime example of what you're talking about, that these fundamental institutions and ideas in Europe actually don't have their origin in science or democracy or you know modern developments they they they, they have their science they, they have the their, their origins in the church that's right and it's you know it's, it's a peculiar story because it's not as if the church is trying to impose democracy or anything like it but there are very strong rules within the church about the fact that you know the decisions that touch all have to be decided by all Right. And so there's a rule that, you know, if you're going to tax the clergy to, for example, go on a crusade or because the pope needs to defend himself, you have to get the consent of the clergy. And since you can't canvas everyone, what you do instead is call a church council. And those church councils send representatives who can make binding decisions on behalf of their communities. And so already by, you know, the 10th century or so, you have the introduction of these two incredibly powerful principles of binding consent, sort of binding representation, and of consent. That you, you can send a representative, they'll agree to the tax, and you'll have to pay it. Because you would think that it would be the total opposite, and that you know, the, 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 the person in charge of the church, the Pope, would say, I, I listen to God, God's told me what to do, get on with it. You'd think that, but you know, there are plenty of bishops who are entirely obstreperous and who frankly are obstinate, right? And their take on it is that that's fine, I'll listen to you when it comes to some theological matters, but if you want taxes from me, you have to have my consent. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know, these councils change policy or somehow control what the Pope is doing, but they force the Pope to call them so that they can express their consent to what the Pope wants. And I think this is sort of, you know, one of the misunderstandings about the Catholic Church, that there's a lot of sort of, um, because the Pope doesn't have divisions, right, as Stalin put it, and because these early rulers don't necessarily have that much coercive power either, so much of medieval rule is cajoling and negotiation and persuasion and trying to bring people with you, whether it's bishops if you're the Pope, or if it's, you know, your barons if you're the king. So it's not ruled by force. It's not ruled by some kind of a state enforcement because those are too weak. Instead, there's a lot of sort of persuasion and compromise and consensus building. Now, I'd like to compare that to the situation with Islam, but I'm going to hesitate before doing it because I think we have to do this in an orderly way. And, and so basically, let me just ask you, you've talked about elections, councils, which are basically early parliaments in a sense. Uh, you've talked about taxes. But in addition to that, we've got the idea of good administration, public administration of law. Uh, I, I think you even say contracts have their origin in the church. So can you run through some more of those legacies? Sure. So as, uh, I think the legal legacy is probably the one that has made the greatest impact. And so, you know, we as part of the struggle between, uh, between the popes and the, the rulers. What you also have is the rediscovery of Roman law. So basically, in the, in the late 11th century, Roman law, the codices um, that survived, that basically were compiled by Justinian in the 7th century, all get, um, all get rediscovered. And, this be- and law starts to act as sort of the fundamental way in which rulers and popes can now negotiate. Canon law also gets systematized um, in the 1140s. And what basically happens is that as a result of this, we have all these sort of, you know, uh, innovations. Um, 
concepts such as corporations, right, arise from Roman law as it's been interpreted by canon lawyers. This idea that you can have this fictitious person who can sign contracts and who can make deals, that's unique to Western Europe. You basically, you don't see it in Islam, you don't see it in China. That idea of corporation that makes economic development, investment, and property rights possible arises from the church. The idea of impersonal office, that you know, just because you die, the office doesn't die with you, which is critical to sort of the continuation of administration, also comes from the church. The very idea that contracts are sacred, and so you can't just change your mind and walk away. Once you've signed it, both parties have to agree to, dis- uh, to dissolving it, also comes from the church. And even the whole concept of the rule of law, of law as reigning supreme over rulers and people, um, also comes from these innovations in the 11th and 12th century. And because law, you know, this has become such a powerful weapon and such a powerful sort of tool in how rulers and popes interact, it generates this enormous demand for legal experts. And that's how we see sort of, you know, the founding of universities, right? So by 1088, you have the first law school. Um, they spread very quickly through Europe. And these legal experts that are trained in both canon and civic law, in both church law and in Roman law, um, fuse these ideas, spread them all across Europe, um, and basically start to sort of implement them as administrators um, in the royal courts. Right. So you're building this very convincing case for the importance of the the church in in you know, the foundation of Europe, really. So you mentioned Islam and some of the differences, and you know, less emphasis on contract law there. So what what else? would you bring out in terms of the comparison, first of all, with Islam, and we'll deal with others later? So I think the biggest difference is the separation of secular and religious authority. That's what this conflict of the late 11th century, um, this conflict over sort of, you know, who gets to govern whom, really establishes. You know, the conflict is known as the investiture conflict. Um, it's nominally over the naming of bishops, but fundamentally it establishes that secular authority is different from religious authority. That kind of strict separation and the idea that there might be two spheres in which the two appropriately function never really gets developed in Islam. And that makes it very difficult, for example, to change law, right, or to sort of change governing principles because they are fused with uh, theology and they're fused with a divine rule or a divine sort of you know, divine teaching. Whereas in Europe, precisely because the two are divided, the different ideas about governance and how you can govern people, collect taxes, wage wars, take up on their own. They're not constricted by this idea that somehow this has to be divinely ordained. I think that's the single biggest difference between Islam and Europe, um, so the Islamic world. Well, what's fascinating about that is that is is that that is still so relevant today. Yeah, yeah. You know, these days, uh, you know, the church has definitely receded into it's. It's very much uh, a distinct, uh, distinctly secondary actor in European politics. But absolutely, in the Muslim world, I think there's still that struggle to sort of define what the proper spheres are and how to transform governance. If you see some, you know, the struggles were various reforms. They're partly constrained by religion, partly re- constrained by custom, and partly constrained by the various sort of powerful factions that don't want to see um, change in how uh, the Islamic world is governed. If we go further east, um, can, can you do a, a, a comparison of this European development with Hinduism in, in the South Asia? You know, I would hesitate to say anything about Hinduism in South Asia just because that is so incredibly diverse. I think that, you know, once again, the big difference there is there is no sort of hierarchy. There is no one united actor. 
I think religion clearly is very important in South Asia, but there are so many diverse versions of Hinduism and of religion that I would hesitate to say much beyond the fact that the big difference there is the diversity versus you know, the monopoly that the Catholic Church held in Europe for so long. And then China is the opposite of that, right, I presume? Well, China is a fascinating case. There's a wonderful book by Yuhua Wang that just came out about state development in China. Um, and there, I think many other scholars have agreed that this is this remarkably centralized and cohesive state um, that basically has no room for an alternative authority, whether that alternative authority is religious or civil society or anything else. Um, it's just a very powerful state. And that power changes over time. Um, as Yuhua demonstrates, you know, there are times when the state is much weaker than in other points. But compared to Europe, this is, you know, this is not a place with 500 little countries. It's one enormous country with a monopoly of rule that could only be envied uh, by medieval and even early modern uh, European rulers. Right. Well, I'm going to veer back uh, west now and just ask you to distinguish between the various branches of the Christian church and to uh, help us understand what impact they've had on the development of you know, these societies in, in Europe. So can, can we just take them one by one? We, you've talked a bit about the Catholic Church and how that worked. So how did that differ from the Orthodox Church? So the huge difference, again, is with the separation of religious and secular authority. So what happens in Byzantium, basically, there's you know, the great split that occurs in the middle of the 11th century before this reform movement takes off in the Western Church. And the split occurs, and in the West, this becomes one of the catalysts of this kind of a huge reform movement, this assertion of church power, the distinction between secular and religious authority. In Byzantium, church authorities run into the arms of um, the secular authorities. They seek protection, um, and in fact, rather than fighting for an autonomy, they want more and more protection, and they concede enormous amounts of power. So you know, the the Byzantine emperor continues to name bishops. He continues to um, basically transform canon law as it's practiced in the Byzantine Empire. And there the state and the religion basically fuse together. And you can see this even today, right? So in, the Catholic Church speaks a lot about moral policy, whether we agree with it or not. It is constantly speaking out on moral issues and it tries to influence the policy of the secular state. Um, in the Eastern world, that doesn't, in the Eastern Orthodox world, that doesn't happen. The church and state are fused, and in many cases, the church acts as an arm of the state. Um, you can see that in Russia, for example, to a lesser, much lesser degree, you can see that in Greece. And what you have then is basically sort of you know, a national identification of the church without any religiosity. And the church's main concerns aren't moral policy, it's their tax status and the sort of prevention of competition, of sort of rival religions trying to convert uh, the faithful. So it's a very different religious and political landscape that, again, has its roots in the separation of uh, political and religious authorities back in the 11th century. Can you just tell us a bit more about Greece then? Because I can understand what you're saying in terms of Russia, and uh, you know, I've seen it in Serbia and Romania and places where the Orthodox Church is strong. What you've described, uh, you know, I could, uh, I've seen that, but in, uh, I haven't seen it in Greece. So what's going on there? So Greece is, uh, you know, is emblematic in the sense that there's a very high popular identification with the Greek Church, Orthodox Church. It is seen as part and parcel of the nation state. Um, so something like over 80% of Greeks identify as Orthodox, but something like 15% of them actually practice their religion. 
right? So there's sort of, you know, the church becomes emblematic of Greek nationalism and Greek patriotism without ever being a religious authority that would convince people to go to church and to pray to God and to sort of, you know, adopt the, uh, the moral teachings of the church. Do you believe that whether a country is predominantly orthodox or not has, has an impact on its economic and social development? I mean, and particularly economic development, because of all these things you're talking about, contract and the importance of law and all that. Uh, I mean, I guess some of those are still there in the orthodox areas, but is there an impact? You know, this is something that scholars have debated for decades now. Um, and the data isn't very clear. There is some correlation, but we're not sure what, where the causes actually lie. So I'd be hesitant to say more than that. I, I, you know, it's, it, it is the case um, that these countries currently are less economically developed than, uh, or sort of differently economically developed than those in Western Europe. But we can say that about the rest of the world as well, right? I mean, Latin America is less developed than Western Europe and always has been. Catholic Eastern Europe is less developed than Western Europe. So I'd be hesitant to sort of assign too much causal power to orthodoxy itself. Yeah, but just anecdotally, as you travel east into more orthodox areas, you seem to get into, I mean, I've, you know, as a journalist, observed this into more, you know, sort of less democratic, more authoritarian more sort of stolid, if you like, societies as you as you go east. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, I think there there's definitely a kernel of tr- tr- truth to that. I think these are much more traditional societies in many cases. But then, if you travel to Sicily, for example, or to southern Italy, which is very very Catholic, um, again in this kind of popular identification sense, you'll see many of those same patterns. Um, and that doesn't have much to do with whether it's you know Catholic or Orthodox versions of Christianity. You've talked about Catholicism and the Orthodox Church. Where does and how does Protestantism compare with this? So, you know, that again is kind of the, the correlation that everybody notices, right? From Weber on, we've talked about what it is that's different about the Protestant countries um, and how they've you know, done so incredibly well. To me, you know, it's, it's um, I think that the default state is where the rest of the world is. And the sort of Protestant Northwest European countries are kind of the exception to that to that sort of general state. Um, and some scholars have argued that this has to do with the emphasis that Protestantism, especially Lutheranism, places on literacy and the reading of religious texts and other texts directly, which hugely increases the stock of human capital that's available and really places an emphasis on education, which is critical to research and development. Other scholars have noted, um, you know, there's the Merton hypothesis that basically argues that um, Calvinism especially, because it is such an austere religion that doesn't sort of, you know, suffer the fripperies of Catholicism very much, is actually quite conducive to scientific investigations and to the kind of, you know, the, for example, more members of the Royal Society were found to be um you know, Calvinist than any other sort of religious denomination. So there are various ways in which scholars have argued for that relationship and what the cause might be, but no one has really nailed it yet. Um, And I think that's something that uh, certainly a lot of people are looking at and hopefully we'll have clearer answers in the future. You didn't mention one of the themes most commonly associated with Protestants, guilt. Trust me, there's plenty of Catholic guilt to go around as well. The, the <laughs> difference, but that, I think that's an important difference, right? Because Catholic guilt can be absolved. You can go to confession and be absolved of your sins. You'll still have to pay for them in the afterlife, but you're no longer consigned to hell. 
Whereas, you know, for I think a lot of, uh, you know, in Protestantism, it's a very different notion. There is no earning grace. There is no sort of, you know, good works earning you salvation. You either are saved or you're not. It's, you know, it is solely by the grace of God that you're saved or you're not. Which I think sort of, you know, generates a very different dynamic about sort of what's allowed and what isn't and how you approach uh, your sort of personal morality as well. Right. So now then, we've veered a bit away from the development of the state uh, and the role that the church, you know, the various forms of the church played in that. So maybe we can bring it back onto that by asking about England Mm -hmm. and the way that developed differently. You have a passage in the book about how distinct that was. So could you talk us through that? Sure. So England is fascinating for two reasons. One it's that it develops a sort of a more coherent and cohesive state long before any place else in, um, in Europe does. Partly this is because of the Viking invasions and the need to, um, to bring up the Dane Guild. Partly it's because there's a lot of warfare going on within the British islands. And so there's a lot of sort of you know, development of, of local rulers. But in both cases, the state, insofar as we can talk about the state, is considerably more advanced in England than it is in the rest of Europe, even before this kind of, you know, grand efflorescence of the church. The second fascinating thing about England is that the church is very much aware that England is an island, it's powerful, and it's therefore best left alone. So even as the church tries to sort of exert a lot of influence and sends its bishops with this sort of armed with these new legal and uh, parliamentary uh, orders all over Europe, it's very hesitant to sort of you know, assert its authority in, um, in England. So if we look, for example, at the number of excommunications, um, I'm trying to remember the exact number, but you know, something like close to 50 excommunications target Holy Roman emperors and rulers. There are only two cases in England in the Middle Ages. Um, there's basically no sort of excommunication of English kings because the papacy is totally willing to let it do its thing in the hopes that it won't interfere in European politics. And as a result... There's a development of common law in the 12th century, which is unique um, to, the rest of, to the rest of Europe. There's a centralization of power that goes on within the royal courts. Um, and there's a system of justice that in weird ways parallels what the church does, but is much more powerful, where the king sends out um, justices in the shire who go out and administer the king's justice, which is a very powerful force for establishing royal authority and for centralizing power at a time when the provision of law and order is the single most important thing for a ruler to do. And all of this is sort of allowed to happen um, because the papacy is quite aware of how powerful England is. And the last thing at once is England, for example, allying with the Holy Roman Empire and doing something to the papacy. So as you spool forward, what impact did those differences have on the development of the state in Britain compared to continental Europe? So there are still quite a few influences. Canon law kind of seeps in, uh, as one scholar put it. You know, there are, there are still sort of, you know, Catholic, there's still an entirely Catholic legal system um, where basically penitents can go and get justice from the Catholic church uh, courts rather than from the ecclesiastical courts rather than from the royal ones. Um, so there's still quite a bit of influence of uh, the Catholic church on uh, English politics. Bishops sit in the House of Lords, right? They are, they are represented officially um, in, the, so if you're in, the, in the British uh, body politic. But I think what happens is that precisely because the king has always been given more power over the bishops, 
the kind of the kind of you know reformation that takes place in England, and it's kind of very unique path, right? These are not Lutherans nailing nailing theses to the cathedral; it's the king asserting his what he thinks is his you know very real and legitimate power. Um, that means that sort of you know the the moving forward. The Reformation will take a very different form in, in England. And it also means the Catholic Church, even though it influences a lot of English politics, will never be in that position of asserting its own authority the way that it could in the rest of Europe. Now then, uh, before you tell us whether you agree or disagree with the thesis, can you, can you explain to us how the idea that states weren't created by the church so much as by the need to fight wars. I mean, that's a view, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's out there. So, so can you tell us where that idea came from? And then we'll discuss whether you think it's valid or not. Sure. So this is an idea that scholars such as um, Otto Hinze and uh, Max Weber first developed around the turn of the century. And um, it's most prominently associated with Charles Tilly. And the basic argument says that you know, the state doesn't really exist. It doesn't really take off until the early modern period, where there is very sort of new, powerful, you know, this new military technology that's new, that basically requires fighting very expensive warfare. And because there's this fragmentation of authority, because you have this constant conflict between various rulers at a time when warfare becomes more expensive, two things happen. One is that war winnows out small, you know, weak states as the big and powerful really consolidate their power. And domestically, because war is so expensive, it requires the development of taxes and parliaments. Not because you know anybody actually wants to develop them. It's kind of you know Tilly calls them these sort of happy byproducts of warfare. But you basically call parliaments in order to agree to have nobles agree to taxation that's necessary to wage war. And so this kind of um, idea about how the state arises really sort of you know, has, I think, um, three central components. The first one is that this all takes place in the early modern period. Secondly, that war and secular conflict are critical to basically ending fragmentation and winnowing out the small states. And three, that because this war is so costly, it requires bargaining with the nobles and it basically leads to taxation and parliaments as state institutions that arise after the early modern period. Right, and what is your assessment of those views? I mean, do you do you? Th- I mean, it sounds quite convincing. Uh, what, what do you think? The, my, I think the reason why I wrote this book is because I began with a very simple observation that these institutions that were supposed to be the products of early modern warfare, taxation, and parliaments, are on the ground in Europe in the twelfth century. Right, the first parliament, the first Cortes, is established in eleven eighty eight. Um, the first real taxation takes place a few years later in, in anticipation of the Crusades. And so the very things that um, are claimed to be the products of early modern warfare are already on the ground um, 500 years earlier. So the question is, why is that? And so in my account, I look at the Middle Ages and sort of see where do these you know, institutions, these precocious institutions arise? And that's how I got to the church, because it turns out that in this early time period, um, these early parliaments, the early uh, rule of law, the early administrations all owed so much to the Catholic Church. And the fragmentation that Tilly and others talk about wasn't incidental. Um, it was deliberately fostered by the church, and it persisted long after um, Tilly and others have claimed that you know, early modern warfare should have eliminated. 
Yeah, so that gives us a good sense of of you know of, of what you're saying in your book. Now, then, as we, we've we've spoken for about half an hour on the past, let's just think ahead a bit. And when you think about what you've learnt and you know the analysis you've come up with in studying uh, the last millennia or so. Uh, do you believe that gives you insights into the future of Europe and maybe elsewhere that others don't really have? You know, that it helps you understand what's going on now and where it's headed? You know, I think what it's taught me, I, I, as a good social scientist, I'm very loath to make predictions about the future of Europe. Um, but I do think that there are sort of two big lessons from here, um, from this account. One is that you can have very powerful authorities that are in no way democratic, that are in no way concerned with economic development, that can inadvertently lead to those very things, right? The medieval church never sought democracy. It never anticipated capitalism. It had no idea what these forces that are unleashed would produce. But this highly autocratic, highly centralized actor nonetheless sort of allowed millions of people to have a very real say in their governance and for the modern capitalist economy to take off. Um, I think the second thing that I would say is that we, you know, we focus on war as a force of state building, but to me, war is fundamentally destructive, right? And you know what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now, the Ukrainian state may emerge stronger from this war, or it may take decades to rebuild and to sort of you know function again um, in a peaceful world. So. You know, I think the this this sort of idea that you know you can, you you can have um, autocrats inadvertently leading to democracy, and warfare as being very very ambivalent about you know its impact on state making, um, I think are the two lessons that still hold today. Although I guess it's only fair to say when you talk about war in that way, it depends on the time frame you look at, right? That's right, absolutely, and you know. I think we also are living in a very different international environment, right? The idea of a NATO or a European Union existing um, doesn't really sort of, you know, that's really not, those are much more sort of durable and long-lasting alliances than the ones that we see in the medieval period. Um, We also have, you know, the whole idea of international law and the fact that Russia is violating day in and day out. Um, That's another big difference that certainly didn't exist at this time. Okay, well, I'm not going to try and persuade you to predict anything, but uh, at the same time, you know, when you look at what's happening in the states, and and maybe Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, where there's a revival of a Christian culture, a Christian politics, right. that you know is pretty surprising. Uh, it was mainly on the right in America, isn't it? And and it, it, it's maybe broader in 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 Hungary with Orbán winning elections on this. Uh, what? How do you understand what's going on there? I think in both cases, it's the instrumental use of religion, right? And so in both cases, and certainly um, in Poland uh, to an extent as well, what you have are secular rulers that are wrapping themselves in a religious cloak in order to appeal to their supporters um, and in order to establish their conservative bona fides. This does not end well for the churches that are involved. Already, you know, if you look at religiosity rates in Hungary, they're pretty low. In the United States, uh, people are leaving the evangelical churches. Um, and so the number of people who are unaffiliated and no longer part of the evangelical churches has risen over time, especially among young people. And the same thing in Poland. So you know, there's been a sort of an exodus from the church. So it is useful for would-be autocrats to wrap themselves in the veneer of religion. It may appeal to some voters and supporters, 
But in the end, it profoundly undermines the legitimacy of, the, of these religious authorities, and it leaves many people with a very bad taste about religion um, itself. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're, you're right. You don't, you don't hear of powerful bishops in in Hungary or America. No, no you don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's politicians using them, yeah. Okay, but what about the situation in France? I mean, uh, there seems to be an irony that, as you've mentioned, in Britain, you know, you've got bishops in the in the House of Lords, you know, they're actually with votes on legislation. And in France, there's this, you know, long-standing attempt to separate uh, the two, the church and the state. And yet, it, it is the French who seem to have more difficulties with uh, Islam within France than Britain does with Islam within Britain. How, how do you understand you know, all those debates about multiculturalism, given what you've studied. Right. So again, I think, you know, there are there are people who've written much more about this than I have. But I think the general understanding is that this notion of laicite in France is not a neutral one, right? It is, in fact, in many cases, sort of, you know, an attempt to preserve Christian values without Christianity. Um, and because of that, and but yet it claims to be very, you know, it's, it claims to be very secular, right? This is the whole notion of laicite is, is wound up about that. And so it has problems with accepting Islam, not just because it's a different religion, but it's because it's offensive to this national principle of, you know, supposedly secular secular governance. So it's offensive not, I don't think, I think if the reason, part of the reason that there's been such difficulty with integrating Islam is that there's this myth of a secular France that in fact is kind of a cover for certain sort of notions of a Christian France. And Islam is a threat not as, a relig- as an alternative religion, but as an alternative national identity. And so many Muslims are seen as suspect, as not truly French, because they hold on to this you know, religious loyalty that isn't part of the French national story. But this has less to do with the Catholic Church and, religi- and religion or religiosity itself than it does with a peculiar form of nationalism and the kind of myths that arise around it. What you've done is given us lots, lots of things to think about, uh, including just at the end there, uh, the nature of what's going on in, in France. So it, it's been a very interesting discussion. I mean, I, I would normally ask you to, to speculate a bit about the future, but I see you're just not going to do that. <laughs> so, so, so I will leave it there and say, look, thank you very much for um, talking us through this fascinating book. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.